Once upon a time, there was a man who got totally discouraged with the pace of his life and the hubbub and the schedule and the busyness and the noise, and he decided that the best thing to do would become a monk and join a monastery out in the middle of nowhere. So he did his research and he found a monastery that was so secluded and so quiet that the monks did not even speak. And he went through the discipline and he became a monk at this monastery. And the deal was every ten years they were allowed to speak, but they could only say two words. So he was happy. For ten years he prayed and he fasted and he fasted and he prayed and he studied diligently. And at the end of the ten years the abbot called him in and said, My son, you may say two words. What, what do you have to say? And he said food bad. So he went on about his monthly chores and for 10 more years he prayed and he fasted and he fasted and he prayed and he studied diligently and at the end of 20 years he went in and the abbot called him and said, son, you have two additional words. What would you like to say? He said, bed hard. Well, he went on about his chores and for an additional 10 years he prayed and he fasted and he fasted and he prayed and at the end of 10 additional years he came in before the abbot and the abbot said, my son, what would you like to say now? And he said, I quit. (laughs) To which the abbot said, well, it's no surprise to me. All you've done around here for the last 30 years is complain. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) James almost drowned. (laughs) You see, we have issues in life, and I don't know if your food is bad, or if your bed is hard, or if you try to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, but sometimes life is hard. In fact, we can expect that as followers of Christ. And our goal over the next few weeks is to dig into this little epistle, the letter from James, and my job today is to introduce it to you. James starts out in chapter 1, verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. I love the ancient way of writing a letter because it always starts with the author. You know, when you get a letter or an email, you've got to look at the end to see who wrote to you. But here is James saying, I'm writing to you, listen up. Now the first question is, who's James? And as our comedian told us, he's the younger brother of Jesus. And so that's where we want to find, how do we, how do we learn about, about James? Uh, in the book of Mark, Jesus has gone to his hometown, and he's grown up there, and he's now begun his ministry. And instead of being a carpenter, Jesus has taken on some new tasks. He's claiming to be the Son of God, the King of Israel. He's a miracle worker, a storyteller, a, a preacher of great renown. But when he goes home, it says they scoffed at him. And they said, he, that's Jesus, is just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his sisters live right here among us. See, it's interesting to note that Jesus came from a large family. He had at least six siblings. James is always mentioned first here and in the Matthew 13 passage, a similar event. James is probably then the oldest son of Mary and Joseph, which makes him the half-brother of Jesus. Think about that for a minute. You know, my wife and I do a lot of teaching on the home, particularly parenting. And I often ask the crowd, who would you like in the Bible to model your home after? Well, the, the interesting thing is there are, there are no perfect homes, and this was not perfect either. In the first place, how many of you would like to have a sibling that thinks they're like Jesus? You know, anybody have a sibling that thinks they're like Jesus? Any of you are a sibling, and you know you're like Jesus. See, I had two younger sisters. I knew that would be you, Jim. You're just like Jesus. 
And if my sisters followed in my footsteps, I, I could either make it difficult for them or, or easy for them, but they were still related to me, and that was, that was most of the time not a great thing. And so Jesus is the perfect older brother. He never sinned. He never spilt the milk. He never said a bad word. He never hit his thumb in the carpenter shop and said, oh, praise me. But he's now doing something different. Joseph is probably dead by the time the ministry takes place. In the Jewish world, older men married much younger women. And therefore, since Joseph doesn't appear in the gospel accounts, the tradition is that he's dead and gone. Jesus is the oldest son in the family, and he should be taking care of the family, working as a carpenter, but he's not. And I'm guessing James feels a lot of that burden. You find James again as Jesus' half-brother in the, in the Mark account, chapter 3. It says, in the, this is early in the ministry, it says, and Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather. Soon, he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. Well, I resemble that, especially in the fall. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. Now, I don't know that James was there, <clears throat> but as the next oldest son in the family and the one responsible to help, my guess is he may have been there. Regardless, his immediate family are not believers in Jesus. In the John account, we read this, Jesus' brother said to him, basically the theme is this, go to Jerusalem. You can't become famous if you hide like this up here in Galilee. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. And then the verse says what? For even his brothers didn't believe in him. So here is James. Who is he? Well, he's Jesus' younger half-brother. And he's probably, at least during the ministry of Christ, not a follower of Christ. And yet when we open up the epistle of James, we read, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now how does that happen? How do we see James in the gospel accounts as a skeptic and a doubter and one who's not a follower of Christ to James in the book of Acts who's a leader in the church? By the time of the book of Acts... Jesus, uh, James is one of the pillars in the Jerusalem church. In Acts 13, when Peter is released from prison, the first person he goes to see is James. James was the lead pastor in Jerusalem. In Acts 9, after Paul has his great conversion on the Damascus Road, the one person he needs to go see is James to get the seal of approval from James. And in Acts 15, during the Jerusalem council, when the church is debating great theology... It's James that gets up at the end of the council and gives the summation of the council and the ruling of the church. So how do we see James in the Gospels as a skeptic and James in the book of Acts as a pillar? In fact, he's called many things in, in, the, in the church history. The, the, uh, the, the church father, Hesippicus, calls him James the Just. And Eusebius, who writes in the second century, calls James Camel Knees. That was his nickname. Here comes old Camel Knees. Now think about that. You know, what kind of knees does a camel have? They're all crusty and calloused. That's because James spends so much time praying. And apparently he goes from being an unbeliever to a believer, and the question is why. And my thought is it possibly has to do with this little passage tucked into 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is listing the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. You know, Jesus was raised on Easter Sunday, and then he stays on the earth until the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. So for 50 days, Jesus stays on earth. And during those 50 days, there were at least 10, if not 11, appearances of Christ. 
And so Paul lists many of them in this chapter. He says, I passed on to you what was most important to me and what also had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. And then it says he was seen by Peter, you know, Peter, the leader of the twelve, and then by all the twelve, and then verse 6, after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was seen by James. I got I to gotta wish I were a fly on the wall when Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. You know, I have a list of questions that I'm keeping in my head so that when I get to heaven, I can ask people these questions. I want to ask the kid who gave the loaves and the fishes for the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, what did his mother say when he got home after the miracle and he had a whole basket full of bread and a whole bucket full of fish? I want to know what his mom said. But I want to know what James said when Jesus showed up. I'm going to tell Mother Mary on you. I don't know. But James goes from being a a skeptic, a doubter, a scoffer, in fact, to being the writer of the first book of the New Testament. There's some really cool stuff in the book of James. James is written as early as 43 A.D., 43, 44, 45. And most of the people at that time were Jewish believers in the church. You know, it's only 10 years after the resurrection. Ten years after that meeting occurred, James writes this epistle. And he fills it full of Old Testament references. There are five chapters in the book of Acts, but 27 out of the 39 Old Testament books are referenced in one way or another. Again, that makes sense. If James is writing to Jewish believers, they need to know how Jesus fits into the Old Testament program of God for them now in the New Testament. And he uses the word brethren, which is, I think, both genders, brethren and sistern. And so he's writing to believers, and that's very, very clear. You see, there are two different kinds of books in the Bible. There are books like the book of Romans, which talk about the way to God. How do you get to know God? How do you connect with Him? And if you don't know God today, we're we're so glad you're here, and we exist as a church family to help you get connected to God. But once you have that connection, that relationship with God, we want you to grow in fellowship. And so we have books like the Epistle of James. We spent some time this last spring in the book of Ephesians, and those are books that talk about the walk with God. And so the word brethren is used a dozen times in five chapters. James wants the believers in Christ to learn how to live by faith. And so he starts out, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad greetings. Twelve tribes always refers to Jewish people. And the audience is very important here. These are Jewish believers in Christ who have been persecuted because of their faith in their Messiah. Even to this day, an Orthodox Jew, when they have someone in their family come to Jesus as Messiah, they hold a funeral for them. They are dead to their family. And these are people who've taken that step of faith. They have Jesus as their Messiah, and they've lost their family. Many of them have lost their jobs. They have lost their country and now have been kicked out into the world of the Gentiles called the dispersion. And they're trying to survive as a Jewish follower of Christ in a Gentile world, they have nothing going on circumstantially. They have job issues. They have family issues. I'm sure many of them have marriage issues. And what they need is a word from God. And so imagine this. One day you go to the mailbox and you get a letter, and it's from James. 
James is the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and I'm pretty, pretty pumped up to hear from my pastor. And look at what he says. These 12 tribes, Jewish followers of Christ who've lost just about everything as a result of their relationship with Jesus. What do they need to hear? Well, here's what he says. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Really? Really? I've lost my family, I've lost my job, I've lost my country, I've lost everything for Christ, and you say I'm supposed to rejoice? Come on! That's my response, because when I have trials, I don't generally respond well. I respond well with that great question of life. Why me? Or why this? Or why now? God, I love you. I'm following you with all my heart. Why would you let me go through this awful situation? James doesn't say consider it all joy if you encounter various trials, does he? If you are a follower of Christ, you will have tribulation. Jesus promises that himself to us in John 16. In this world, you have tribulation. Don't give people the idea, hey, come to Jesus and your life will be perfect. Your problems will be over. No, some of your problems are just starting. But he doesn't say rejoice at the trial. You know, I I hate people that say, I'm having these trials and I'm just so happy. I just want to smack them, don't you? That's phoniness to me. But he's saying you can rejoice because the trials are not the end result. There's a goal in mind. There's a process that God wants to use in your life and my life to build us in our faith. And so he says, consider it all joy when you have various trials. The word various is the word polka dots of every size. It's the word variegated. They come in all shapes and all sizes. And they come in different stages of life. You know, my grandson today, his biggest trial is, can I find my second shoe? The Stiverson kids were running around in between services. I think between them they had two shoes and they were a different pair. That's a big deal when you're two. And then you go to school. And you get to middle school and you know, my biggest trial is, can I get that boy or that girl to notice me? And then you go to high school. And my biggest trial is, uh, am I going to go to college? And if so... Why? And if so, where? And then I go to college. And what am I going to study? And am I going to get married? And if so, why? And if so, to whom? And then I get married. And all the women say, why? (laughs) And then you have children. And then both husband and wife say, why did we do this? And now I'm at the end of my life, at the back end. I'm I'm in the last third. I'm rounding third. And they're there are new trials to deal with. You know, my wife's mom, who's 100, got put on hospice care last week. And those are different because that's how life is. We get these various trials at different stages of life. And James says that's not the goal, but the goal is that the trials produce something. Verse 3, knowing that, read this, knowing with me, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Say endurance. So trials are used by God to produce in us what? endurance. What's endurance bring to mind? Well, I think about sports when I think about most things, but endurance is a thing I used to learn about because it's easy for you to tell. I used to be a distance runner. Not. But I did run some back in the day when I was much younger. We lived in Georgia for a while, and 
I got to where I was jogging, and I didn't really enjoy it, but I didn't hate it. I had a buddy that jogged with me once in a while. He said, you know, you're doing really well. Why don't you come jog with me? We're going to run a 10K on Labor Day weekend and come down to Noonan, Georgia, and we'll run together. I said, great. Now, that was a bad decision. I did not know what a K was. But, you know, he's my friend. I trust him. I love him. And so I got there at 7 in the morning with 280 crazy people, and the gun went off, and we started sprinting. And the first inkling I had is, K's must be really short because we're sprinting. K's are not short. There's 2.6 or 2 point whatever it is, 2 K's in a mile. Well, 1.6 K's in a mile. And at the mile, I was at 7 minutes and I was done. Except there were 10 K's at 6.2 miles. But there there were great people there. They gave me water. And encouragement. And in the first mile, you know, I blew by a bunch of the little old ladies. I'm just smoking. I'm only 30 years old, and I'm getting it. And I'm, <sighs> but I get to a mile, and I'm I'm toast. And so I, I'm chugging some water there. And my buddy says, "You know, I, I'm going to keep going while you get get caught up. But I'll see you at the end." I said, "Okay, you go." And so off he goes, and he keeps going at a seven-minute pace. Well, I get to the second mile at about 15 minutes, and I get to the third mile at about 20 minutes, and I get to the fourth mile at about 40 minutes, and I'm dead. I finish five miles, and I'm thinking, how many more Ks are there? At the bottom of the hill, after five miles, there was a big, long, mile-long trek. To get to the top of the hill, you would go 6.2 miles, and you had to get to the top of the hill because that's where they got your T-shirt. And... That's where the doctors were. <laughs> and so I'm going up that hill, and that's where I learned about endurance. Because as I'm going up that hill, those ladies that I passed during mile one, they're just jogging right by. You know, these 55-year-old ladies say, don't quit. And I'm thinking, I hate you, old woman. I hope you get a hot flash. I mean, I was not really saying that out loud, but that's what I'm thinking. I was not rejoicing because I did not have endurance. I was so bad at this, by the time I got to the top of the hill, they'd given out all the T-shirts. I didn't even get a lousy shirt for that. And James says, consider it all joy because the testing of your faith produces endurance. But see, even endurance is not the end result. Endurance is simply the ability to finish. God wants us to finish in our faith. But along the way, there are two results that endurance ought to have. Verse 3 and 4 says, "In let endurance have its perfect result that you might become perfect and complete. The word is mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I expect a two-year-old not to be mature. I expect a two-year-old to sit in the high chair and scream when they don't get what they want. But I don't expect a 42-year-old to do that. And so God says, hey, I'm going to send you trials that will build into your life endurance so that you can become perfect. Again, the word is mature. It has to do with fruit that's ripe. And the last word is complete. Lacking in nothing. I like the word complete. It's the word holokeros. And it really is a sports word. How many of you are going to watch the NFL today? How many of you root for the Bucks? Who are the Bucks playing today? The New England Patriots. If you are Tom Brady right now, what are you doing right this minute? You are licking your chops. Maybe you're salivating because you're playing the Bucks, and they are not complete. 
They are not complete at quarterback. They are not complete in the O-line. They are not complete in the defensive backfield. If I'm Tom Brady, I'm picking the D-backs apart today. It's a career day for the greatest American to ever live. By the way, I hate him. <laughs> and I try to root for the Bucks, but in most of the years, they're not complete. They have weaknesses for the enemy to exploit. And you see, in our faith, God wants us to get to where we have no weaknesses for Satan to exploit. God wants us not only to talk the talk, but he wants us to walk the walk. He wants us to grow to where we are complete, lacking in nothing. And that whole thing is a process. I can rejoice in trials because trials produce what? Endurance, and endurance gives me maturity and completeness. You with me? Now the whole thing, God, or James takes and he wraps it up into a ball and he calls that whole thing wisdom. Verse 5 says this, if any of you lack wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to do all this. Wisdom is the ability to see life from God's point of view. Wisdom is the ability to, t to look at the big picture. I can see how those trials have worked in my life to bring me endurance, to give me maturity and completeness. That's wisdom. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him what? Read it. Ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. When I'm faced with a trial, and it's not if, it's when. If I don't have God's perspective on it, what should I do? Pray. See, there are only two things I know of in the New Testament that we're told to pray for. We can pray for anything. In fact, we're told to pray without ceasing. But I'm told to pray for my daily bread, and I'm told to pray for wisdom. Isn't that good? This has nothing to do, students, with going into a test unprepared. I used to claim this verse all the time. I'm not ready. I didn't study. God, give me wisdom. That's not what this is about. This is about enduring trials in my life that I don't have an answer for, and so I'm asking God to give me his perspective so I can see the big picture. Maybe God will show me the end from the beginning because that's the promise. He, it will be given to him. And if you're willing to enter into this process, you will begin to understand wisdom. And here's the process. The process is first, trials plus joy equals, plus endurance equals what? Maturity and completeness. And that whole thing is called what? Wisdom. Now I want to teach you the word wisdom because it's my, my, I have two favorite words in Hebrew. And they both start with the letter H. But in Hebrew the letter H is not huh, it's CH, it's kh, kh. So I want you to go kh, kh. And the Hebrew word for wisdom is the word chakma. Say chakma. Say chakma. Tell the person sitting next to you that word without spitting at them. Chakma. Chakma. I love that word. James says, and again, James is writing to Jewish people. They have a whole book of their Bible about wisdom. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of chakma. See? And if you don't have wisdom, go to God and ask. Because there's another promise in James chapter 1 and verse 12. I love this verse. Well, wisdom is skill for living, but he says in verse 12, blessed is the man. Just stop there for a minute. Blessed is the man is the very first verse of the Psalms. If you go to Psalm 1-1, it says blessed is the man. So he's dealing with Jewish believers. They would know Psalm 1, who does not sit in the seat of sinners or walk in the way of, of, of the scornful. And he says blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. See, if you're willing to enter this process and persevere under your trials, 
For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Once you've been approved, literally once he has passed the test. The word been approved is the Greek word dokimos. If you would go to Greece, and I'm taking a trip over there next summer, love to take you, next September, about a year from now. We're going to do the Journeys of Paul trip. But we'll do a little shopping over there on some of the Greek islands, and you can buy some pottery there. And when they take the clay pot and they put it in the kiln and they fire the pot, if it comes out uncracked, they stamp the Greek word dokimos on it to this day. It has come through the fire and been approved. Isn't that a great word? So when you buy Greek pottery, make sure it has dokimos on it and not like my pottery says, made in Taiwan. Don't want that one. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved or passed the test, he will receive what? The crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, I brought this, and you've got to turn off your cameras. I don't want anybody taking a picture of this. <laughs> How many watched Miss America last week? It was on. My wife makes me watch sometimes. Pretty interesting about Miss America. You really don't have to watch any of it except the last two minutes. You can always tell who won. How, did you, how do you know? She has the crown. There are four different uses of the word crown in the New Testament. And this is, somebody took a picture. I said, I'm going to get you, Zach. <laughs> It'll be posted on the church website, I know. The crown, I think, is not eternal life, although there is that crown in, in the New Testament. But I think this is the crown that is a quality of life that does what a crown does. First of all, the crown marks the winner apart. Okay? When you tune in at one minute before the end of the show, all those 50 girls look alike to me. They're all about 5'8". They all weigh about 118 pounds. They all have similar measurements. But the one has the crown. She's the winner. And I think this. You know, if you're a follower of Christ and you learn to deal with your trials this way, with wisdom, you will stand out as though you were wearing a crown. People will beat a path to your door and say, I want to know about your relationship with God because... It works different for you. You're set apart. You're the winner. Now, the other thing the crown does is this. Let's be honest. Don't you feel real bad for Miss North Dakota? Hey, are you from North Dakota? I'm sorry, but you will never be Miss America. And no one from North Dakota will ever be Miss America. So I feel bad for Miss North Dakota because... She isn't going to win. You know, the, the Miss America winners are always from Texas or Florida or a few from California. They've, they've won. Two New Yorkers in a row have won. What's up with that? You talking to me? I think the mafia was in on this one. And I'm guessing the week after competition, Miss North Dakota and Miss South Dakota and Miss Nebraska, they say, oh, I hated those tests. I, I tripped on my evening gown. The swimsuit made me look fat. My talent was awful. And the question the judges asked was impossible. But the winner says, I get it now. I know now why I went through that. Because the tests during the week of competition were the way that I was allowed to win. You with me? And I'm guessing, and, and it was really cool because Miss Florida tore her ACL in practice while she was spinning a baton 
which I still haven't figured out why anybody does that, but she was awesome at it. And she came in in a knee brace and she made it to the final five. She was, she was awesome. But she didn't win. But she get, she get, she'll be more famous than the winner because I won't remember the winner, but I'll remember the knee brace. But the winner can say, now I know how all that fit together in my life to bring me to a point where I've won. Isn't that cool? Of course, then they always give Miss America one last final trial. Do you know that? They take thorny rose bushes and they give her a whole bouquet and they drive the thorns into her forearms and she has to carry them down the, down the way while somebody sings. And she's bleeding and she's crying. See, you thought she was crying because she was happy. No, she's crying because the rose bushes are killing her. It's the last trial. She won. Now, I don't know what trial you're going under. But I do believe, Rick Warren, you're either in the middle of a trial or you're just coming out from a trial or you're getting ready to go into a trial because that's the Christian life. And James says, count it all joy when you have these various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know, over the summer, over the last few, few sessions, we dealt with burdens being sticky church. In a couple of weeks, we had you bring your burdens up on sticky notes and we prayed over them and that's part of being a follower of Christ is being in community with people and small groups are cranking and I'm already hearing great stories about small groups because that's where we can bear one of those burdens. But you know, part of the other thing we did was we took answers to prayers and we stuck them out on the board in the back and that was our crown of life. Those were people who said, you know, I went through an addiction problem, I went through a marriage problem, I went through a health crisis, I went through a school issue, and God showed himself strong on my behalf, and I'm going to bear witness to that on the board out in the back hallway. That's the crown of life. Where are you in that process? As the band comes, I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me. In a group of this size, there are problems of every type, various trials. There are family trials and work trials and neighborhood trials and friend trials, enemy trials, health trials, job trials. I don't know where you are right now, but I know where James is. James says, you can consider it all joy, not at the trials, but you can consider it all joy knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God, give us endurance so that we might become mature and complete in our faith, lacking nothing so there's no weakness for the enemy to exploit. Today, Father, a lot of us don't have those answers, so we go to you and ask for wisdom. You've said if any of you lacks wisdom, chakma, let us ask of you because you give to us generally and it will be given. And then, Father, we claim verse 5 or verse 12. Blessed is the man or woman who perseveres under trial, for once we have passed the test, once we are dokimas, we will receive the crown of life, that quality of life that sets us apart because of our faith, and that quality of life which allows us to see trials from your point of view. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which you have promised to those who love you. Father, we love you and we're thankful that you don't leave us here without an instruction manual about how to live out our faith and we pray as we study this book of James you give us a faith that works in Jesus name Amen